0: Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host John Kiriaku. Hi, John. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Good. Just wanted to say hello since I'm not looking at you as I say this because <laughs> John's still in Israel, where we're going to talk about the elections uh, in just a sec. Uh, but there's still who knows what's going on in Brazil right now. As of a couple minutes ago. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro, the president, had not conceded the election uh, that, you know, was held on Sunday. He hasn't said anything yet. And no. so things are getting tense over there. Uh, I mean, there are also reports of people saying it doesn't, you know, it's it's as odd as it can be without feeling uh, terrifying is some of what I've heard uh, discussed. We're going to talk about that a little later in the show with our correspondent there. I mean— yeah, Bolsonaro just hiding out is pretty craven.
1: And, you know, there there was some uh, footage on CNN this morning that was interesting, too. Brazil, of course, is a <laughs> is a well-developed, uh, relatively prosperous, heavily populated country, big, enormous, you know, eight lane highways like we have here. And there was there was video of Bolsonaro supporters just shutting down these major highways, just yeah. laying in the roadway. Traffic jam spreading for miles and nobody has seen the guy. Nobody's heard from him mm-hmm. and he has not said anything about conceding.
0: Yeah, we just saw his motorcade uh, leaving the presidential residence yesterday and that's it. So maybe something will happen in the next hour and a half before we get into it in more detail. But that's where we are now. Uh, we are also later in the show going to ask what's up in the Black Sea. We're going to ask who's up in Liz Truss's phone and why there are so many rumors floating around about it. We are going to talk about this U.N. climate report that gave us a little bit of good news and then a lot of bad news. Uh, We will get into what we know about the attack on Paul Pelosi, what has shaken out, which is starting to actually make some sense. Uh, We are going to talk more about what's up at Twitter. We'll get into a new report into U.S. government efforts to control information flows. And I did not like the idea, John, of uh, creating cognitive infrastructure. I understand how in a certain bubble you could think, no, this is good. Like we want people to understand how to think about things. And, you know, we want to create create these um, networks so that you are able to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of information. But the people I want behind it are not a lot of the folks who are in the CIA and the State
1: Department. No, and and that's something we're going to bring up with with our one o'clock guests, too, because the the question is an easy one. The question is, what do we do about misinformation? The hard part of the question is, who do we entrust with figuring out what disinformation or misinformation is?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a terrible question. I hate it. I hate it (laughs) every time we have to talk about it. Um. I also I want to get to these uh, elections in Israel, but I want to say something about uh, Joe Biden and all these headlines he's gotten over the last couple of days for warning and threatening oil companies with a windfall tax. He gave a speech yesterday saying just this after we had a day of reports about whispers of just such a tax coming. And so what is he doing Joe Biden is going to urge Congress to consider tax penalties on big oil, as Bloomberg put it. And I actually, I'm going to give it to the New York Times in their presentation of this speech. Uh, The lead for their article, the the, uh, subhead, was the president has been eager to redirect public anger over gas prices as Democrats try to keep power in Congress in the midterm elections. It then explained that. The president's embrace of new taxes on the energy industry heartened liberals in his party who've been urging him to take action for months. But it was more of a way to pressure oil firms than a realistic policy prescription for the short term, given that Congress is not even in session and would be even less likely to approve such a measure if Republicans capture one or both houses. That's quite right. I mean, I don't want to have an unrealistic idea of what the president is able to do and the time frames in which he is able to work. But this is just Joe Biden wagging his finger again or tweeting, you know, better do something or else. And what has that gotten us so far? Absolutely nothing. This is two or three quarters in of record profits for these oil companies. Other countries have already implemented these kinds of taxes. They did it months ago. And even the idea that Biden is going to be able to bring pressure with this statement is kind of questionable, considering what the Times itself just said, that Congress is not in session. And if the GOP wins, it's going to be an even tougher measure to get through. So we're back to He got a lot of headlines about this, you know, idea of of redistributing wealth somehow. But the chances of it going anywhere are extremely slim, and it feels like nothing but politics.
1: And you know what's sad about it too, Michelle, is that it even looks like it's just—it's just closing the barn door after the animals get out kind of politics. Yeah, people aren't stupid. They know the election is a week from tomorrow. They know that. Uh, The people the the American voter reads the same polls that we do, Mm -hmm. and they see that that everybody's blaming Joe Biden for inflation. Everybody's blaming Joe Biden for high oil prices, even if Joe Biden, you know, shouldn't shoulder all the blame. But it's a little late in the game to start, you know, trying to distract people.
0: And again, the UK instituted this windfall tax in May. Right. This is not the first quarter of incredible profits for these companies. It is at least the second. I'm pretty sure it's the the third, right, of, of record breaking uh, money making for these guys. And again, how long has Joe Biden been uh, vaguely threatening action or imploring right. these companies to find their patriotism? Like, it's just outrageous. And yeah. Now he decides he's going to apply real pressure at a time when that real pressure, is, everyone knows it's non-existent. If he was going to do a windfall tax, do it while you have nominal control of the government. Ah, it, I'm insulted by it. It makes me mad. It, this kind of crap really, uh, it it feels, again, it, it feels like you're being treated like you're stupid. I don't like it.
1: Oh, yeah. It's very cynical. Yeah. It's very cynical, and people are going to see right through it.
0: All right, John, let's let's talk about Israel. Uh, I the thing that caught my ear today uh, was in NPR's segment on the election uh, where they concluded that a lot depends on the Arab vote, uh, which to me smacks of the refrain of, you know, do you want more? We'll vote harder that we get in the U.S. And I feel like it is probably as disingenuous. And so I wonder, you know, Do you think this is true, that a lot of the outcome of this election is going to come down to how and whether Israeli Arabs vote? And what do they have to vote for?
1: See, that's the that's the question right there. Um, Haaretz has been pushing this line the last two days, saying that. that Arab turnout is traditionally less than Jewish turnout and that Jews turn out at about 65 percent, Arabs at about 45 percent. They said today that if Arab turnout was above 45 percent, it would be impossible or almost impossible for Benjamin Netanyahu to cobble together a coalition. But if turnout among Arabs was below 45 percent today – that it would be almost impossible to defeat Benjamin Netanyahu. I I mentioned on Fault Lines this morning that I got up early. I got up before polls opened. I went all over Jerusalem just to sort of get a lay of the land. You wouldn't know that there was an election today. Nobody's out there in the streets. There were no lines at the polling stations, almost no political advertising at all. And then Haaretz went on to say that – by midday, it appeared that Arab turnout was significantly lower than it was in the last two elections. So my guess is, well, this is really Haretz's guess. Uh, you need 61 seats in the 120 member Knesset to win. They're projecting uh, Netanyahu at 59 to 62 seats. Everybody else is far behind.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly wonder again. There's a there's a difference in this turnout for a reason. It feels like, yeah, for and a it's, reason. And it's you but know there always this pressure put on these populations that in some ways have the least to gain from the options they're presented.
1: Right? Yes, yes. You know that's the thing. They the Arabs. Let's say the Arabs do want to go out there and vote for what it yeah. doesn't accomplish anything for them. Nine times out of ten, really more frequently than nine times out of ten, in every case. Except the very last election, they were completely cut out of government. So, you know, they, they have a handful of parliamentary seats, Knesset seats, and then that's it. No ministries. Uh, their policies are not uh, en- enacted. And what does it mean for for settlements? if uh, If the Arabs actually do join a coalition government to keep Netanyahu out, it doesn't mean anything for settlements. Settlements are going to continue to go forward. And so the Arabs feel frustrated. Uh, They feel belittled. They feel cut out of the process. And uh, so why vote?
0: I also wanted to ask you about uh, there's been a lot of press about the role of the uh, religious Zionism alliance Uh, in this possible government formation. What what do they want and what will it mean? Are they they're predicted to get like twice as many seats as they actually have?
1: Is that right? Yeah, this is this is really a, a troubling trend. This government is moving farther and farther to the right. We used to see so many Americans used to see Netanyahu as a right wing extremist. Now he's just in the mainstream, you know, conservative movement. And you've got these these new or newer religious parties, religious slash Zionist parties. You know, time used to be when the really religious types were not Zionists because mm-hmm. it was up to God to decide when the state of Israel should be an actual state. Right. Um, but that's changed. And so now you have a lot of right-wing extremists who are also Zionists, who are militantly anti-Palestinian, uh, and they're going to do very, very well in this election. One of the other surprises uh, was um, the, the Israeli electoral law is such— that in order to be represented in the Knesset, you have to win three and a quarter percent of the vote. Here you've got the Labor Party, which has governed Israel for much of its existence. And the um, the Maretz Party, which is the other left of center party, neither one of them is even polling three and a quarter percent. So it, it may be that there are no uh, leftists or progressives in this new Knesset. It's going to be a battle between the far right and the slightly less far right.
0: Glorious. (laughs) God. I also just find that like the role of religion in the Israeli government to be perplexing and like maybe unresolved unless I'm missing something. Right. Because as you said, it used to be. That the most, you know, the most sort of fundamentalist or extremist uh, religious elements in in that society were sort of anti-Zionist, right? Again, as you said, now, of course, you have this convergence of far-right politics and religion. But it's also like, I don't know, it still feels to me kind of unresolved as to what is the role of religion and what is the role of like uh, this vaguer idea of cultural identity in who is um, a priority in Israel, right? Because if right. it's just religion, you know, it seems like it should be pretty easy for, for example, Ethiopian Jews to, to migrate to Israel, but that's not necessarily the case. If religion is right. not important, then you're just like militantly maintaining an ethno state, which people are, I think, less happy about. I don't know. Is it, am I missing something? Is there like, or is no. this, is this You've just a sort of head. tension that everyone is kind of, you know, living with that, that doesn't yeah, really make you, any you, sense in terms of the role of, you know, religion
1: in this in this government. You've hit it on the head, and you know when I was in college studying this stuff, um, the big split, the big political, socio-political split was between um, was between Jews from the Middle East who who had emigrated to Israel and Jews from Europe who had emigrated to Israel, and now that's just all fallen by the wayside. Now you've got the Russian Jews being the most. Powerful faction in the government. You've got Ukrainian Jews. You have the European Jews. There's an enormous contingent of American Jews, um, and so it, it's just turned—it's just turned politics on its head. And I mean, just and like in the last twenty years or so, it's nothing like it, it used to be here.
0: Yeah, it doesn't also seem like uh, a, a direction that I particularly <laughs> would endorse.
1: No, and one of the things that, that I have realized in spades is. There is no such thing as the two-state solution. It's just not even a part of the conversation here. Yeah. We talk about it in the United States, but literally nobody is talking about it here. And only one political party still advocates for a two-state uh, a 2 uh, state solution, and they're not even going to make it into the Knesset this time.
0: What is, the, what is taking its place? Because I agree. I agree with you. The two-state solution is an idea that has been dead for a long time. The United States clings to it because— We want to appear to be, uh, you know, fair and appear to have some kind of plan. But has anything taken its place other than uh, we're just going to avert our eyes as Palestinians are sort of slowly genocided, right? Because I can't imagine the two-state solution— I can't imagine most of the people who have abandoned that idea are embracing a one state solution in in which uh, Palestinians, you know, six million Palestinians are uh, voting members of this country.
1: Yeah, uh, you're right. You know, you'll you'll hear a little bit about about the idea that has worked, for example, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, where, you know, it looks like a checkerboard. This part's Bosnian, this part's Herzegovina, and this part is Serbian or Republika Srpska or whatever they're calling themselves now. Um, and that would be sort of the model for Israel where – So it's sort of
0: self-determination though, by county kind of?
1: Or, or even by settlement, even smaller than by county. So if you've got settlements in the West Bank, those settlements are Israeli, even though they're not connected to Israel proper, and everybody's just going to have to learn to get along. Hmm. Uh, The the Israelis have also said that they will never give up one inch of Jerusalem, ever. And so that's a non-starter because the Palestinian position was and always has been that a Palestinian state should have, will have East Jerusalem as its capital.
0: But so surely – Israelis who do not wish to have a Palestinian state next door are also going to balk at the idea of having a Palestinian neighborhood next door that operates by correct. its own rules that are not their rules, right? If they are different governing systems.
1: Absolutely so again, it goes correct. back
0: to, we're just going to avert our eyes while, uh, Gaza becomes unlivable yeah. and we slowly force everyone into exile or death.
1: I, t- I talked to a guy yesterday, uh, he's an American Jew he looked to be about 70 years old, born and raised in Brooklyn, emigrated here with his family about 10 years ago. And he told me, looked me right in the eye and told me with a completely straight face that there is no such thing as a Palestinian. Yeah. You know, there are Jordanians, there are Lebanese, there's no such thing as a Palestinian.
0: So who are all those people?
1: They're they're Jordanians and they should be Jordan's problem.
0: Okay. So expel them to Jordan. Right. Not, not, yeah, not because uh, no, I mean, not, I'm not saying was, that as a prescription. It's uh, obviously it's expel them to Jordan. Not we're going to annex this territory to Jordan, because,
1: of course, you know, right. it seems like exactly con- right. control. His the- point was was that when when the British were here, when the Ottomans were here, Um, that these Arabs didn't call themselves Palestinians. I said, it was my understanding that that's not true. I mean, the Philistini in the Bible, the Philistines are today's Palestinians. They've been here as long as you have, I said. And he said, no, that's the Western propaganda that they want you to believe. Yeah, so it's intractable. I hate to say it.
0: Yeah. Well— bad news to start. (laughs) Probably have some more coming up. I know we have our next guest on the line, uh, John, so we could take a break here. We could just go straight into this conversation about what the heck's going on in the Black Sea. Fantastic.
1: Let's do that. Let's do that. Well, the Western Press today reported that Russia has stepped up its rocket attacks against Ukraine, specifically targeting energy infrastructure. As many as 350,000 residents of Kiev are without power today. The State Department spokesman yesterday lambasted Moscow's decision to withdraw from the UN broker deal that allowed for grain to be exported using the Black Sea. This development is likely to be the main focus of this week's G7 ministerial meeting. And possibly at the G20 heads of state meeting later this month. And a Russian government spokesman said today that Ukraine had launched a massive drone attack on its Black Sea fleet, damaging one warship in port in Sevastopol. And Iran said today that it would send additional weapons to to Russia, including, much to my surprise, ballistic missiles free use in the conflict. We're going to talk about this with Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and policy analyst. And Mark, you know how great it is to always have you. Welcome back.
2: John, Michelle, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be uh, with the political misfits. Hmm.
1: Well, we are always happy to have you. And, you know, I scanned, as soon as I woke up this morning, I scanned the Washington Post, the New York Times, all the usual suspects, Mark. And they're all saying Why? that fighting... <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> Got to know what the other side's saying. They're saying that this fighting is intensifying, uh, citing more robust Russian operations in the area around Kiev, as well as the drone strikes against the Russian fleet in and around Sevastopol. Is that your impression? Are things stepping up? Should we expect to see more fighting and more sophisticated fighting in the coming weeks?
2: Well, I mean, you're definitely going to see more fighting. I mean, the fighting has been fairly constant, and I don't see that it is going to stop any time uh, soon, especially with um, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of uh, uh, Russian reinforcements uh, being sent into the theater. I don't know about more sophisticated because, um, I mean, that depends on what you mean by sophisticated. The... The general level of the Kiev regime military forces is deteriorating. They, uh, there is a lot of the latest Western-supplied weapons are museum pieces, uh, old Soviet museum pieces, being pulled out of literally museums uh, in uh, you know former Warsaw Pact countries. And while they're getting a handfuls of uh you know uh higher level western weapons that really they they don't have good capabilities to to use to be trained on to they don't have no ability to repair our logistics i would say that certainly for the kiev regime side the, the conflict is is becoming less sophisticated uh at least uh in in, in technical means meanwhile um while Russia retains, you know, their production capacity um, and uh, so on, they've also found, uh, particularly with uh, the uh, Garan 2, the uh, locally produced uh, Russian uh, drone based on the Iranian Shahed 136 Kamikaze drone, they've found that at least with, with this capability, that uh, cheaper and simpler and effective may be better uh, you know in, in a, in a uh, quantity over quality uh, way uh, than, than uh, some of the current models that, that, that they have been using. I mean there's a, a range to use this and a range to use that different situations, different ranges, uh, uh, so forth. but uh, you know uh, you, you could say that, that, that Russia is making very good use of an actually very low-tech drone that happens to be very effective when your opponent has next to no air defense.
0: John, I think you muted yourself.
2: Oh, I sure did. Sorry. (laughs) I'm having a nice conversation with myself over here.
1: (laughs) The State Department is up in arms today, Mark, over the Russian decision to pull out of the grain deal. And I'm going to apologize for this because this is not at all my area of expertise. But I don't understand why, if the Ukrainians want to sell their grain, why can't they just – Ship it overland to Romania or Poland, and then put it on ships there. Why is it all or nothing?
2: Yeah, they 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 can and they are and they have been, but shipping grain by sea is far cheaper, easier, and faster than it is shipping it by land. You can simply can't send it in train cars uh, across land uh, in the the. Uh, quantity and for the cost that you can buy maritime shipping, which is why that is the standard uh, for moving grain and and most other goods around the world. It can be done. And to a a certain extent, Macron has actually been pushing an idea of um, of trying to um, uh, ramp up that uh transfer of, of of grain by land uh but when when it comes down to it uh, simply it it often becomes cost prohibitive
1: yeah that that makes more sense to me do you foresee any fallout for the russians from this grain decision or or maybe it's better to to ask if it even matters at this point because there's not much left to sanction is there
2: yeah. So first of all, I I don't think that uh, any type of new package of sanctions, which probably would have happened anyway, uh, is going to, you know, dramatically uh, change the situation. So I, I don't see that there. But Russia is the world's biggest exporter of grain. It has been kind of really falsely blown up in the Western media about Ukraine's role, they're an important grain. They're number five on the list, right? Um, they're still a fraction of what Russia provides. Whereas, if you read a lot of the Western mainstream media, uh, sorry, propaganda, um, you you would see a lot of mention about Ukraine being the world's breadbasket, and everyone's going to starve if Russia blocks this, without any mention that Russia provides far, far, far more grain uh, to global markets and that Western sanctions uh, haven't inhibited the financial tr- transactions. Uh, they've uh, uh, targeted the ships that transport the grain and the insurance for those ships, all of which is, is a far bigger problem for global food supplies. But considering the breakdown that uh, you know, has been revealed about where this Ukrainian grain was going, the biggest share of it was going to the EU. The second biggest share of it was going to Turkey on its own, uh, which is also a Western NATO country. Um, And, uh, you know, if you get down to it, only somewhere between three and five percent of this Ukrainian grain was actually going – Two countries that the U.N. considers uh, a serious risk of of uh, malnutrition and problem, you know, like uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, uh, Yemen and the like. So the biggest consequence of Russia pulling out of this decision, assuming that the grain flow from Ukraine stops because that's not necessarily – uh, set in stone at this moment. Uh, it depends on what Russia does. It depends on what the insurance carriers decide is an acceptable risk. But the biggest effect is that um, the EU has basically been using this grain deal to lower inflation and the cost of food in the EU. It is actually <laughs> uh, likely to see a higher increase in food prices and inflation in the EU as a result if the flow of grain from Ukraine stops, that may be the biggest effect.
1: My goodness, I, I didn't know that at all, but it makes perfect sense to me. Hey, tell us about these Ukrainian drone strikes against the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Apparently one ship was damaged, but what does a wave of attacks like this mean for the Russian Navy? And perhaps even more importantly, can the Ukrainians keep something like this up?
2: Okay, so um this uh, attack uh, consisted of nine aerial and seven maritime suicide drones packed with explosives. The Russian intelligence uh, uh, revealed that it was planned and and helped implemented by uh the British Navy by experts working out of a Ukrainian naval base in uh Achakov, uh in the Nikolaev region. And there was also reports of a US global hawk circling above the Black Sea at the time that probably was was coordinating a great deal of of this. Um, it seems likely that Russia had wind that this attack was going to take place and allowed it to take place under controlled conditions. The only damage was done to a, a minor damage to a minesweeper ship, the Ivan Golubiec, Uh, And other than that, nothing really considerable. Russia managed to take them all out with air defense and maritime action and naval aviation. Um, and the release of the intelligence about the British being involved just within a few hours seems to hint that Russia allowed this Because they were already unhappy with the grain deal, because uh, the basically the West had not lived up to what was promised to Russia, uh, um, uh, removing some of the sanctions against the insurance and ships used to transport fertilizer. Um, The EU did this, but only with regards to the fertilizer going to them. Not with regards to Russian fertilizer being sent to Africa and the rest of the world. So once again, the, the EU's greedy and rapacious nature uh, reared its head. They don't give a fig about the Africans. Uh, they were more concerned about their own interests. So Russia felt that the West wasn't living up to their end of this deal, and they were already planning not to extend it uh, when it came up for renewal on November 19th, just a couple weeks away. So I think they let this happen under control conditions. Um, can this be kept up? Well, the base that was being used, uh, in coordination with the British, um, uh, in, uh, Ochakov was hit very heavily by cruise missiles the other night and it essentially no longer exists. Um, so, um, I have doubts. I have no, No doubts that they will continue to cook up high propaganda value, low strategic importance uh, stunts. Um, You know, you can always find vulnerabilities, but will those be vulnerabilities that'll change the course of the conflict? No. We've been
1: seeing a great deal of press here in the U.S. about Iran's military relationship with Russia, and our producer... um, Uh, Ben just showed us a tweet saying that Saudi Arabia is sharing intelligence with the U.S. warning of an imminent Iran attack. So tell us about Iran's relationship with Russia militarily. The Russians have long been major arms manufacturers. Why do they need Iranian weapons? Okay, so, I
2: mean, the 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 strict close Strategic partnership that has developed between Russia and Iran didn't exist until just a few years ago, and they've been pushed into this as well as with China. Uh, They they regularly now do annual naval drills um, uh, in uh, between the Persian Gulf and the Indian Sea, Russia, China and Iran all together. And Russia became much more familiar in a working relationship with Iran and Syria, which is where they got to see the capabilities of Iranian dis- drones on display. Um, no one world military has all the answers and all the tools. And the Iranians have been really quite ingenious at y- developing, uh, you know, uh, relatively, shall we say, asymmetric cheap weapons with limited resources because of the amount of sanctions that have been leveled against them for so long to good effect. And they they actually have one of the largest uh, and diverse range of short and medium range ballistic missiles in in the Middle East. Uh, They have a quite capable military and a lot of Western propaganda really uh, intentionally, I believe, downplays their military and strategic uh, strength um and that's a, a big misnomer these particular drones i you know i don't like the term game changer but their big advantage is, is they're driven by a propeller right these can be things can it, it's a bit of an exaggeration but you could theoretically put one of these things together off of parts from alibaba right <laughs> um They – and and because of this, they carry very little fuel, but they're still able to travel immense distances. Their operative range might be up to 1,500 kilometers, and they can be fired in swarms, right, Um, uh, because they cost less than – possibly significantly less than $20,000 a pop. Um, which means that it is far, far, far more expensive to shoot them down than it is to produce them. And reportedly, what Russia actually got was the rights to Produ- the designs and the rights to produce them in Russia, and they've replaced the internal guidance system with Russia's GLONASS system, which it, it allows for even improved uh, accuracy and no chance of signal tampering with a, um, a commercial GPS system. Um, and, and Russia has, has had great success with them. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a feather in the cap of Iran, uh, uh, quite seriously. Russia, of course, has a big range of their own. But like the U.S., they tended towards more expensive, more technical variants. And they discovered that for the particular usage here, cheap and mass-producible but still effective might be uh, uh, an important tool in the toolbox. And that's what they've become. Russia continues to use their own lancets and cubs, their own variants of suicide drones. But uh, this is uh, an important addition, and they've made good use of it. And they can keep doing it ad nauseum. Because they're so cheap and so easy to produce, whereas Ukraine re- require, you know, they've gotten some uh, switchblade um, kamikaze drones provided by the U.S. in limited quantities, right. but they've proven much less effective and they're far more expensive. Uh, so, um, what, you know,
1: mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you. What about these yeah. these ballistic missiles that the Iranians are apparently selling uh, Russia or or giving to Russia? I didn't even know that. The Iranians add ballistic missiles unless we're talking about short-range missiles. Why, yeah. why do the Russians yeah, need those?
2: Yeah, these are uh, – sh- they're short and medium-range uh, ballistic missiles. Like I said, Iran actually has a pretty substantial and diverse range of ballistic missiles, one of the, the biggest in the Middle East. Uh, they're looking at the FAT-110 uh, and the oh, Zolfaghar. Uh, which are uh, respectively 300 km and 700 kilometers. So those are short range, but that's, that's already a pretty significant range for these. Russia has been using a lot of its own ballistic missiles, and it's been using these Garan-2 Shahed-136 drones basically as cheap ballistic missiles rather than using them as loitering munitions. But because of the new strategy they've developed on, uh, quantity – Uh, I think is important at this this point. And they still want to keep a reserve of their better equipment, including their own cruise missiles, uh, in reserve in case of direct conflict with NATO breaks out. So they're giving themselves some added precision strike capability in terms of quantity If this deal turns out to be true, and it's a smart move, they're facing the combined economic and military might of all of NATO at this point. Can you really begrudge them from from taking a a few pieces from uh, a willing strategic partner who is also a sanctioned adversary of the West? No.
1: I wanted to ask you, too, about uh, a report in The Washington Post today saying that uniformed U.S. personnel are in Ukraine, apparently providing training and advice to the Ukrainian military. The U.S. did this at the beginning of the Vietnam War, too, before we sent combat troops. Of course, we sent thousands and thousands of advisors. They were also uniformed. Is there anything that we should take from this announcement, or is this just business as usual?
2: Yeah, this is mission creep. You should not just take this as business as you. I mean, it is business as usual for Americans in conflicts going back to Vietnam. But this is not uh, a light thing. This was intentionally leaked as part of a, you know, um, narrative shift towards direct U.S. intervention in the conflict, which is probably coming somewhere down the road. First, we heard that the CIA were on the ground. Then we heard that it's CIA, Special Forces, European uh, paramilitary, uh, or sorry, um, uh, commandos uh, on the ground uh, in Ukraine. Now we're hearing about, uh, officially, right, from anonymous sources, right, meaning it was an intentional leak. Uh, to the press, about uniformed U.S. troops. And supposedly what they're doing, according to the Washington Post, Post, is inspecting U.S. weapon cages that they have provided. Um, They say, oh, of course they're not going anywhere near the conflict. I mean, but, you know, we heard the same thing when the U.S. first went into Syria. We heard it when the U.S. uh, went into Vietnam, and we all know where this leads. And we've also heard uh, or um, had... Uh, re uh, up to the importance that the 101st airborne division is in romania and what they have told the press is a combat mission that they're ready to go into ukraine on a moment's notice and they provided a range of of, op- of options where that would be possible and that included a, a, an escalation by russia and i'm not sure that, what that means uh Uh, And it could probably mean anything depending on when the decision is made. But it was specifically in the context in the CBS report on that talking about Odessa. And it seems very likely that in order at some point down the conflict, say six months, a year down the road, to prevent Russia from moving into Odessa and preserving a last major port for the Kiev regime that Russia – that the U.S. may send – the 101st Airborne as kind of a human tripwire force into Odessa. Uh, Probably at the same time, we would see Poles go in into the conflict. Uh, We've already seen thousands of them, but these would then be official uniformed uh, Polish troops. I see that as a strong possibility moving forward, and this is part of the creep the narrative creep to getting it to where people have accepted that the conditions have changed from Biden saying no boots on the ground to, well, we got a few boots, but they're only doing this, to, yeah, we got a few boots, to, we're at war with Russia.
1: Mark, uh, one last question, and I, I realize that we're pressed for time, so I apologize for that. But um, our producer, Ben, just forwarded to us this breaking news Uh, It's being reported now by The Wall Street Journal, saying Saudi Arabia has shared intelligence with the U.S., warning of an imminent attack from Iran on targets in the kingdom, putting the U.S. military and others in the Middle East on an elevated level of alert. Uh, This is apparently to distract uh, from Iran's domestic protests. They say they have specific intelligence, saying that there will be attacks on Saudi Arabia and on targets in northern Iraq. Specifically, Erbil up in the Kurdish, uh, the Kurdish north. Can you comment on this at all? Give us your thoughts. Does this sound
2: plausible to you? Uh, when it comes to the Middle East, anything is plausible, but is it likely? Um, I think that this is probably more disinformation coming out of Saudi Arabia. Uh, at at uh, you know, the first glance, they have a habit of hyping up. The perceived Iranian threat to them because of, you know, the protracted nature of uh, the conflict, of their genocidal conflict, the invasion and conflict in Yemen. But anything is possible. Uh, I haven't heard anything about any military moves from Iran in the past few days. But, uh, you know, we wouldn't necessarily hear it either. So like you, I will be uh, uh, waiting um But the idea that they might do it to distract from some protests in Iran, that that part definitely smacks of 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 a propaganda effort.
1: That was the voice of Mark Sloboda. Mark is a foreign affairs and policy analyst. We're happy to have him join us. Thanks for being with us, Mark. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a very short break and come back. So stay tuned.
3: Welcome
0: back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witty. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're diving right into a report from UN climate change uh, that brought some good news, some bad news last week. Uh, it showed that though the rate of increase of greenhouse gas emissions has slowed, No country is doing enough to hold the planet to a 1.5 degree Celsius increase in temperature, and instead we remain on track for a 2.5 degree increase. The report also said that though all the countries at the COP26 conference agreed to update their climate strategies, um, and I think that means all 193 parties to the Paris Agreement, only 24 had, only 24 countries bothered to revise the plans that they had put on paper, which is a pretty grim result, I think. Uh, We are joined now by Tina Landis. She's the author of Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism, and she's a social justice and environmental organizer to talk about what this report means and, and what we should take from it. Tina, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me uh how do you how do you take this uh this u n report from last week
4: yeah, so it is pretty grim um the The actual existing policies have us on track for two point eight degrees celsius warming mm-hmm. so that's you know above the actual um nationally determined contributions um and the the current commitments so it, the good news is right the the slight decrease of emissions is still has us on track for ten percent increase of emissions by 2030. Right. What we need to do is reduce emissions by 45% by 2030. So yeah. we're going in the wrong direction still. Um, it's, a, it's a very dangerous situation. I mean, we're currently at 1.1 degrees Celsius warming, and we see what's happening around the globe. It's mm-hmm. terrifying. Pakistan, ha- a third of the country was underwater, you know,
0: just yeah. recently. And in
4: California here, we had the longest, hottest heat wave in the state's history, which is saying a lot because we have a lot of heat waves you know the the climate is unraveling at a, a more and more accelerated rate and and seeing this report we're we're absolutely going in the wrong direction
0: i mean the fact that the countries couldn't even get a team together to update the plan you know, which is, of course, a, a, a long way from actually implementing the plan. Yeah, that really does make it seem like this is an afterthought. I wonder if was there anything at least about the quality of the plans countries are presenting? Right. So is is anyone at least on paper willing to do things that will get us to this 45 percent decrease by 2030?
4: I mean, of all the plans that were actually updated, I believe from what I read, only Australia's actually made a stronger commitment. The- resubmitted the same plan as last year um so you got to take that into account as well yeah. yeah i mean it's just it's just like it's impossible i mean it, what i say in my book climate solutions beyond capitalism is is that capitalism is the cause of the problem and and how do you address this in this free market system right there's no <laughs> there's no plan of how to implement these things you can say yeah we're going to do this and this and this but without government control over industry how do you actually get there so, so these plans are pretty weak. And, and especially, you know, countries of the Global South are still developing. It's very hard for them to to produce energy for their, their population as well as shift to renewables. I mean, it's, it's still coming out of this legacy of colonialism, imperialism that's kept them behind. You have to also look at, you know, where countries are at in their level of development as well and what they're doing.
0: And what is the way I mean, this was a discussion at COP26, you know, should should uh, should countries that are experiencing the worst of climate change get reparations from developed countries? You know, what should be the financial commitment uh, that these countries give? What should be the commitment in terms of technical expertise? Right. Because money is great. But if you're keeping crucial intellectual property out of reach, you know, this is an issue. So what what would be a a fruitful way for developed countries to help countries that are developing.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's been discussion of this at the Climate Summit since Paris, and there was a commitment by the U.S. to contribute $100 billion annually to the most vulnerable countries to basically, you know, somewhat compensate reparations, essentially, for, you know, the legacy of underdevelopment that's been forced on the global south. Um, But they have yet to pay up anything. Um, but yeah there's going to be discussion again this year in egypt you know it's a big issue for the global south countries that are they're getting the most impacted by climate change by these disasters have you know weaker infrastructure to deal with it um, you know they're they're talking about a loss and damage fund and you know financial support for these countries um but like i said like the the global north has yet to actually contribute i to <laughs> i mean <laughs> there's no way we can solve this globally without the richer countries paying up. Right.
0: Right. I wanted to ask you, there was a big New York Times piece that came out. I think it came out on the same day as the U.N. report uh, that said a, a new climate reality is coming into view and sort of makes the case that climate change discourse has been locked between uh, optimistic technophiles who think, you know, around the corner is a new technology that's going to fix everything, and pessimistic luddites who say, you know, development has to be halted in its tracks immediately uh, or else catastrophes is, is imminent. Um, and he says the fact that the actions that we have taken in the last decade or so have had an impact, you know, should should make people feel that the ability to control climate changes is back in our grasp, right? Which I think is a a message that should be presented if you want people to continue trying to act. Um, and so, you know, he also it, it goes back and forth. Right. He, he points out that uh, the world has moved away from coal, uh, but also says today more than 90 percent of the world's GDP and 80 percent of global emissions are now governed by net zero pledges of various kinds, which, again, it's like if you. If you believe all of the net zero pledges that you heard at COP26, I don't know what to tell you. I would like you to, you know, please buy this bridge that I've invested in. Um, So I I wonder what you think of this, because this piece generated a lot of attention. A lot of people were happy about it. A lot of people were mad about it. Uh, What did you make of it?
4: Yeah, I mean, like you said, the pledges mean nothing. The pledges mean nothing without a planned economy, which can only happen under socialism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you need a path, a direct path of how to get there. You can't just leave it up. Under capitalism, it's like the whims of the market determine what's invested in and, you know, relying on public-private partnerships to to implement new, you know, technologies and all these things that are just, like, not not concrete. It's very, yeah, delusional that we're going to solve this crisis. It's very urgent, urgent crisis through these piecemeal solutions that are promoted under capitalism. You know, it's past the point of that, right? We need direct government control to implement these changes if we're actually going to going to achieve a, a, a zero emission future. I mean, the UN, even the UN, um, the Executive Director of the the UN Environmental um, Program said that you know be, we basically need to only only a root and branch transformation of our economies and societies can solve can save us from accelerating climate disaster. We need to transform the system we live under. That's really the only way we're going to get there. And that, that really means uprooting the system of capitalism, ending imperialist policies that, that really divide the world and, and undermine countries' ability to develop in a sustainable way. Um, all these things, you know, it, it, t- it will take a real, real transformation of how we live on the planet. and And it's not going to happen by tweaking things. And you know and making sure that investors get make a profit along the way i mean this the changes that are needed aren't going to be profitable, right?
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> but
4: it, restoring ecosystems and trans- you know um transforming our energy sector to true renewables is not going to be profitable for corporations that's just the reality and if we we think we, we gonna, we're gonna we require profits along the way, we're never going to get
0: there yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the good news is it's it, it, the good news is that human beings can do something to steer this ship. The bad news is that, you know, the, the only way to exercise that control is to exercise actual political power. People, you know, so you're a couple a couple steps away from enacting climate solutions because first you have to sort of be able to grab the political reins. Um, I wanted to ask also, because again, when we talk about climate change, you're talking about uh, changes that happen over a long time. And it's it's easy to... I mean, I think we've seen it's it's easy to understate the risks. I mean, another uh, crucial part of this piece was people saying on one hand, it's great that we have uh, sort of tilted this graph downward. Right. So we're not on track for four or five degrees of warning. We're on track for, as you said, two point eight. The bad news is. Uh, the things that we thought were going to happen at like three or four or five degrees of warning are happening at one and a half degrees of warning or one degree of warming. So, you know, all of this stuff remains up in the air. We can't slap ourselves on the back uh, too much. But I, there also can be a a tendency to, I guess, overstate the impact of the moment. And so we definitely are in a moment that feels like backsliding, right? Uh, Europe's in an energy crisis where they've ramped up their uh, use of coal, their importation of coal as natural gas supplies dwindle. U.S. oil producers, in addition to making record profits this year, have continued to invest in their business model and expand it, obviously feeling absolutely no pressure or threat from the U.S. political establishment. And so, you know, is this a blip or is this a a reversal, of course, do you think?
4: Yeah, I mean, the trajectory is still going in the same direction. We're headed towards catastrophe. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to see the big picture sometimes. And also like climate scientists don't even have a grasp on how quickly all this will unfold because we've never experienced this, right? And the, the Earth systems, planetary systems are so complex it's really hard to know how quickly things will unravel, but we know they're unraveling very quickly, as we can see with, you know, accelerating disasters and temperatures rising each year and all these things. So, you know, it's in our best interest to act as quickly as possible. And yeah, the, you know, the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act is, a ha- is really a handout to oil and gas companies. With some little tweaks of like incentives for corporations to shift to renewables, or incentives for you know clean energy, um, but it's not enough. I mean, it's it's really still the b- business as usual uh, in a lot of ways, and and you know like the whole cri- energy crisis in Europe is because of U.S. imperialism, because of the sanctions, <laughs> because all these things you know these political maneuvers by the U.S. to to stay the top dog of the world, right? That's, whole, that's not only holding the whole world back, but also even Europe, even their imperialist partners are now having to backtrack on their plans for clean energy because they're desperate to just, you know, keep people from freezing to death. Right? Yeah. Right. Um, so we need. Yeah. It's like we need to we need to change the system. We, this is why we need a mass mass people's movement that threatens the continued profits of the oil companies, of the banks, of the corporations. Because the only way we're going to see change. It's it's always progressive change always comes from the bottom, right? It always comes from the grassroots organizing and pressuring the governments of the world to do something. Um, so, yeah, it just speaks to why we need to continue organizing and why the climate justice movement needs to be anti-imperialist.
0: Do you see uh, climate concern as becoming a more effective uh mobilizer of people towards some kind of organized politics, if that makes sense, right? Like you, you try all kinds of wealth inequality, you know, racial and gender inequality, uh, concern for your neighbor, sort of uh, recognition of imperialism. But do you see climate actually is becoming an effective way of of uh, getting people to organize toward political change? I mean,
4: I think young people are very much concerned about this and they very much see that, you know, the system isn't working for them in so many ways. Right. Um, Not just with climate, but with jobs and student loan debt and all this. Um, So I do think there's a lot of potential. You know, I just finished up this speaking national speaking tour in 34 cities around the country. And overwhelmingly, people, you know, they want this change. They want to shift how we live on this planet. They they see that we have the potential to do it and that we just need to change the system we live under to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Overwhelmingly young people see, you know, see the need for this and are organized. This is not, we need to broaden the movement. We need to grow the movement, um, to make it more effective, but it is happening. You just don't see it on the mass scale that it needs to be.
0: Tina Landis. always appreciate talking to you. Where should listeners go to find climate solutions beyond capitalism?
4: They can go to liberationnews.org. You can purchase the book there. And I also regularly write on climate issues and you can find articles there as well.
0: Thanks so much for joining us, Tina. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a break here on uh, political misfits in just a second. John, I just wanted to mention something that has been just been eating (laughs) at me uh, since the weekend. We didn't have time to mention it yesterday. Uh, Kanye West comparing himself to Emmett Hill
1: is... Yeah, yeah. To Emmett Till, yeah, the, the the guy clearly is off his meds. It's, he got into a, into a fist fight with a parent yesterday at his kid's soccer match. Oh, I missed that because he doesn't have enough to worry about right now. I just maybe this is not
0: the thing that should have uh, upset me more than any of the other things he's been tweeting. It's just like, man, this idea that uh, you can compare a quote unquote digital lynching to what that child experienced is uh i mean honestly i don't have words for it that aren't swear words i just think it's appalling uh it doesn't yeah, really seem I to i don't know i'm not i'm not seeing that anyone else is having the particular reaction to it uh that i am no, but it,
1: there's there's a lot of head shaking and that's about it yeah, but I, I agree mean, with you. It's and disgusting. I,
0: I guess because people have either de- the people have either decided he's right or decided he's bonkers, and maybe that's uh, appropriate, right? But uh, boy, I just that that blew my mind, right? All right, we'll take a break here. We'll we'll come right back on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
1: Misfits, the Project, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witty. Federal prosecutors in San Francisco released a statement yesterday that included new information in a federal complaint about David DePage, the intruder who allegedly beat House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul, with a hammer after breaking into their San Francisco home. The affidavit that accompanies the complaint should set aside the myriad of conspiracy theories that have come since the attack, many of them perpetuated by right-wing media, Twitter and Facebook. Why does the media give a platform for unfounded rumors? And why is it so hard for the truth to take hold? We're joined by Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's also the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey, uh, great to be here again. So happy to have you. Listen, Fox News and other right-wing media have reported on rumors that Paul Pelosi was familiar with his attacker, that there was a third person in the House, that Paul Pelosi had let the attacker in, and even that Pelosi and the attacker were gay lovers. Crazy. We learned from the affidavit that at 2.23 a.m. on October 28th, Paul Pelosi called 911 and told police that a man who had identified himself as David, had broken into his house by smashing a rear sliding glass door. When police arrived, Pelosi and DePage were wrestling over a hammer. Police ordered them to drop the hammer, and when Pelosi let it go, DePage hit him in the head with it in full view of the cops and knocked him unconscious. Later, the affidavit says that DePage had repeatedly shouted, where's Nancy, and said that he intended to tie Nancy Pelosi to a chair with zip ties and break her kneecaps. DePage is a right-wing extremist and QAnon follower who made no secret of his beliefs. So how have we gotten to a point where facts mean nothing to so many Americans? Have you seen any parallels to this truth-free zone in your research? Well, you know, this is, I
3: believe, a consequence of a lot of of decades of very strange uh, political events in the U.S. and around the world. And a lot of it, I, I think, I mean, this is kind of my my wheelhouse in a way, not these like odd individual one off kind of events, but really the, I, the the state and the clandestine state and then actual conspiracies versus conspiracy theories and conspiracy theories that are dubious versus conspiracy theories that are very plausible and substantiated. I think that when something like this happens, uh, there's going to be a, because nobody really trusts the um, mainstream media and the establishment anymore, there's always going to be a lot of uh, conjecture and speculation And uh, confusion in the initial reporting that uh, feeds a kind of uh, confusion and opportunism on the part of people out there who want to talk about some things or get clicks about this and that. Um, I mean, a part of the problem is that the people when these things happen, that's there are reasonable suspicions that this could be some sort of element of the state producing some sort of terror spectacle in one way or the other. And I have no reason to think that like that's you know that there's evidence that that's what happened here and yet there's a history of this of these sort of things happening um in in ways that we find out the state's more involved later after the fact and there's never justice or accountability for it uh this was even this was the case in europe with these cia created gladio units that carried out attacks like the piazza fontina bombing to uh you know move politics to the right and the um this The the Bologna railway station. There was a bombing like that. It was blamed on like left wingers, but it was actually done by like right wing fascist organizations. Uh, there's the Aldo Moro assassination and the um, Olaf Palm assassination. Weird things like that that never get adjudicated. And we know that the state has, as its, you know, as its prerogative powers, the ability to carry out covert operations with cover stories and lie about them for whatever reason. So I, I don't, I have no idea really what was going on with this particular event with Pelosi, but it's not surprising to me that people would be out there speculating about these things because just trust in authorities is at an all-time low and the authorities have such a long track record of manipulating things or setting people up and trapping people i mean the the state has actually used mind you know had mind control programs to create people that uh, you know mentally ill people that they could use to carry out certain operations and and, and uh, try other things like so it it's people have a hard time there's no real uh solid authority to anchor Uh, American sort of faith in the government in or anything else. And so it's just, this is just a natural consequence of it. And social media just kind of amplifies this, even as they try to control it.
1: That is a very, very good point that we've gone through decades in our history, especially the 50s, 60s, and 70s, where the CIA and others were doing these kinds of experiments, in many cases on human beings, and then never answered for it. Um, And you're right about assassinations, too. I mean, we we know thanks to the the church committee – well, at least we have an idea thanks to the church committee about the kinds of of assassinations that the CIA was involved in or attempts that the CIA was involved in. So, yeah, I, I have to say I think your analysis is right on. There's also been a lot of talk about whose politics are violent and whose politics aren't violent. I don't think it's right to say that politicians are always responsible for what their more bonkers supporters do. For example, Bernie Sanders can't be held responsible for the Steve Scalise shooting or the Portland train stabbing. But I wonder if you see a difference in how our two major parties deal with their violent fringe. Republicans are openly courting QAnon, for example. I think the GOP would say that BLM is a violent wing of the Democratic Party. But Democrats have been tepid on any of their actual requests from the beginning. Is there a difference between actual understandable anger and fantasies that Donald Trump is some kind of an avenging angel? Are we missing something here if we if we treat this as a both sides issue? Well, it it
3: seems to be something that transcends the the partisan divide in the US. I mean, I think that that Dorner guy who uh, you know, killed a whole lot of people years ago was a a kind of generic liberal democrat, which was the strangest <laughs> thing of all that he was basically like a pro DNC, kind of like pro Obama guy. I I mean, and then he he went and started killing everybody. Uh, so, I, you know, perhaps, the I mean, we do have the usual suspects, which is the availability of guns in our society. But I also think that a big part of it is the breakdown of uh, the, American, the American dream, the American promise, the liberal consensus of the New Deal and post-New Deal decades. You know, really by the 80s, you have this new kind of neoliberal regime in the United States. And I think that the powers that be in America gave up on even trying to uh, create and maintain a a successful society. I think that they realized that if people were kind of in a precarious economic situation and were insecure, they were easier to control and manipulate politically, and they'd, they'd be, they would have less leverage to negotiate for better jobs, et cetera, et cetera, or agitate for anything politically. And so we have made it very expensive in the us for ha- people to have housing, healthcare, education, basically all the things that you have to have to like have a decent life and things that if they weren't so overwhelming would allow people to do more work to to achieve their potential in society but they're not able to do that a lot of people in this country have grown up with less than ideal situations and with not much economic insecurity with parents perhaps who were absent much of the time uh, a lot of divorces and so on are related to economic matters there's a you know for certain segments of the population lots of them have you know a family in jail or parents in jail we've got this prison industrial complex I mean we have all of these uh different crises that are very solvable with the technology that we have, except that I think that the people that really rule this country don't see these as problems. They've actually, they see them as ways to discipline the population so that they can continue their hegemony over domestic and international human society. And uh, as a result, we have all of these damaged people who are, are, are prone to violence, and it can pro- it probably transcends the political spectrum, although you know the right wing tends to be uh, more uh, unhinged in the in the U.S., I think, uh, this sort of semi-fascist bent. But, you know, it, it does transcend party lines and it's connected to deep problems in our society.
1: Without a doubt. Aaron, researchers have found that in the 2016 election, and specifically before and during the primaries, the media gave Donald Trump the equivalent of $1 billion dollars worth of free airtime. They concluded that Trump was essentially a creation of the media. Have we learned no lessons from this? It seems to me, and I don't mean to sound harsh, but but any slob can roll out of bed and talk into a microphone, call it a podcast and end up with millions of followers. Just look at what Steve Bannon does every day and so many other right wing extremists. How does this happen? Are most Americans really that gullible, do you think?
3: Well, the, the issue with Trump was bizarre. And I don't think that it was purely a faction uh, or a function of just the ratings. I think that there was a decision in 2016. I mean, this was in the Hillary emails, the, the, the WikiLeaks release, where she says that we should, incur- we should really encourage our assets in the media to uh, amp- amplify these Pied Piper candidacies like Trump. People who have no chance, they thought because Trump was so clownish, he'd be easiest to beat. So they encouraged their media assets to promote Trump. And that just happens to correspond to what did happen. The media gave a lot of free airtime. I've heard even more than one billion dollars, but a billion is in the range that I've heard. It was like a billion or maybe multiple billions when you add up what the value of that airtime was. And I don't think that it was purely because of the ratings. I, I think that if you look back at that time period, Bernie was actually drawing the biggest crowds of anyone. And they fired um, Helms, that Helms guy that um, that that was that had an MSNBC show. They basically fired him for wanting to to cover the Bernie campaign. So I think part of it was that the establishment may have really just been thinking that Hillary was their you know Walt theirs and Wall Street's candidate of choice. And that uh, by covering Trump, you're going to make him the story rather than Bernie. And they didn't really think that Bernie would have maybe the appeal that he did, and they wanted to make sure he didn't. And so they, the way that they dealt with it was to cover Trump a whole lot. That's how it, it seems to me. I see these things as being more top-down than maybe most people do. But right. I just I, – I feel like Bernie was actually – if it was just ratings – Bernie was drawing big crowds. I think people wanted to hear what Bernie had to say. I, I think that they could have – it could have been – if the networks had decided to, they really could have swept Bernie into office even if they'd given him – just just by treating all those – the, the three candidates fairly at that point. But they didn't want yeah. to. They really – they see Bernie with his sort of – he's not even really a, a, a very radical guy. He's to the right of, like, of characters like FDR and JFK uh, in terms of his policies. But we're so far right wing that they just couldn't accept that. And as a result, you end up with this terrible candidate, Hillary, uh, who was uh, put in there by the media in large part, and then Trump, who was also put in there by the media at the request of Hillary. And Hillary was so despised that she lost anyway. Like, people just didn't turn out to what seems to be the main thing. And so this is,
1: uh, you know, they, they've really made a mess of all this. Can you help us put into context Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter? Do you Do you see freedom of expression or maybe I should even say responsible freedom of expression getting better or worse under Elon Musk's leadership? I don't know. I, I It could go either way. I, I didn't
3: really see a big problem with Musk buying Twitter because it's not as though it were any kind of democratic process before, which was animating Twitter and the Twitter moderation. I mean, it's I haven't seen much of a difference on Twitter myself based on who I follow, but some people apparently have thought it was bad. Taylor Lorenz was really complaining about it. Um, I, I don't it, It's very strange that the liberals have become so pro-censorship. it It would seem to be against the I mean the word liberal liberty, liberation, freedom, like this this was supposed to be the one of the main tenets of liberalism is free speech and the way that they get around that now is by arguing that it's corporate speech but that's a you know that's a very right-wing position to take that they're just like that they had, and, and this is what the atlantic in an article i think earlier this year maybe 6 months ago or so they wrote that the us in effect has censorship regimes very similar to what you see in places like china it's just that it's done by the private sector well, that to me is is worse because the American private sector and American political system have a record of really undermining the public's interest. You can see that in the way pretty much every measurable indicator in the U.S. has declined in recent years. So this is – if the Chinese, the Chinese government, if they're censoring things, they can at least say, hey, we're on your side and the proof is in the pudding, Chinese people, yeah. because look at how your lives are getting better. These people in America can't say that, so this is – the the corporate censorship is, I think, even worse than if it was done by Congress because at least in theory Congress is elected. I mean, I I don't want the censorship anyway, but um, this is it, the this is an Orwellian awful situation, and for the people to be like wanting the old Twitter regime back instead of Elon, and he doesn't seem to be worse. If he's at least pro free speech, that's better. They need to do a lot of they need to make a lot of other changes like these, the algorithms and such. I mean, there are people who are boosted on on Twitter who are. Uh, kind of clownish uh, peep characters, and I oh, yeah. get them r- recommended to me by Twitter. And these are people who are essentially propagandists. You've seen that a lot of this with uh, certain war war characters, or people like this uh, Va- Vash dude or whatever. He's like some streamer guy, and uh, he has. His Twitter was always trying to get me to like watch his videos, which thankfully I, I never did because his tweets are very dumb. Uh, but he has a big following, and I just don't see that as being natural. That's just one example of uh, the way that these these are uh, programs that are, are, are essentially tools of social engineering. And uh, Musk is, in my opinion, no better or worse than the other groups. The problem is that we're allowing private corporations to have this much control over what passes for the public commons in this day and age. And that's something that we really need to, to I mean, deal with.
0: I will say practically speaking— if the blue check goes away it's g- that's going to make my job a lot harder <laughs> if you know yeah. people don't want to pay for this blue check cuz it is so easy to impersonate people online and twitter has become such an important source of information like it'll j- basically that'll become pretty worthless as a information source it will still be a you know you can still talk to it'll, it'll be more of a sort of discourse platform i guess but not being able to feel confident that someone is who they say they are online is going to be A bummer, (laughs) a bummer for me and my job.
3: Yeah, you know, I'd pay the money if it. I'd actually pay, I don't know, five bucks a month on for Twitter Mm -hmm. if, uh, if you, if there wasn't the algorithm manipulation Mm -hmm. and and all of these other things. I mean, they basically should just stick by what libel, incitement, slander laws, and uh, maybe you know prohibitions on racial slurs directed at people, and uh, and that's it. But they they ban people for all kinds of things. Uh, like Scott Ritter is a person who's worked as a UN weapons inspector. He's got some expertise in military matters and so on. And he had a different opinion on the BUCA the, uh, situation uh, in in Ukraine. And even if he's right or if he's wrong, like that, they, they you shouldn't be. They should not. They should not be given the power to be the arbitrators of the truth. And that if you disagree from that, you are banned. Like on these official statements, especially in something as uh prone to manipulation and uh, and ambiguity uh as a war zone so this this kind of business really is uh, i mean i don't it's it's basically fascistic and uh this is the, so this is a big problem and the uh, the identity issues and other issues aside like they need to get these fundamental
1: things taken care of i think before anything else You segued nicely into this next uh, issue. We, We hear so much about content evaluators who are supposed to police what is said on social media. First of all, is that a workable solution? Who gets to decide what's true and what isn't true? And at the end of the day, there's a very fine line between content moderation and censorship. I'm just not sure I see a model whereby content moderation works. Do you? Uh, perhaps i mean as i
3: like i said if you have something where it's like okay is this libelous is this slanderous is this incitement um and or is this like overtly racist you know hate speech some, some kind of policy about that even that can be tricky because you know the same words can be used by different people to mean quite different things so i i think that the Part about misinformation and disinformation, they should absolutely stay out of that. It, it, that part is Orwellian. There's no way of dealing with that problem that doesn't create way worse problems. It's a way worse problem to have a ministry of truth that can say, oh, that is misinformation and therefore it is banned, which means they have to decide what is not misinformation, which means that they are a ministry of truth. Okay, that power of the government is so much worse than um, uh, Alex Jones – tweeting dumb things or other people, you know, tweeting things that are inaccurate. Like this is, oh, yeah, uh, this, we're, I, I, what, a, because we'll think about this. This is a problem that this is not a new problem at all. Are, are you going to, if you're going to really declare war on misinformation, are you going to have a, a bunch of drones that fly around listening in on everybody's conversation to make sure people aren't just, you know, distributing misinformation orally from person to person. I mean, this is like people have always had to discern whether they are hearing or reading something that is or is not true. This is democracy depends on, you know, having faith in people that that's that's possible. So uh, if we've gotten to the point that like they don't have that ability, well, whose fault would that be our own political regime? Right. But this this business of thinking that you're going to give people a ministry of truth or have that. Uh, what was it, the Bureau of Disinformation that that one strange yeah, woman was yeah. running for a while?
1: Disinformation,
3: disinformation governance board. Yeah, yeah, right. Which is like when I think of, to my mind, that just means like they're deciding on what disinformation they're going to tell us today about, like you know, Syria or Ukraine or whatever. <laughs> they're they're well, the that, ones who decide actually- what the disinformation will be because that's what they end up being.
1: That's my next question. The intercept has a piece out saying that the Department of Homeland Security has for years been looking into disinformation and malinformation and how to rein them in. That's what led to this aborted creation earlier this year of the Disinformation Governance Board. Do you think the government should have a role in policing the news? I mean, this
3: they already have and this is what people like me suspected all along. So this was like not surprising at all to me to find that and I mean, I, I see this as—I mean, the intercept itself. I see them as basically an intelligence cutout. So they are they I think that they could put oh, these yeah. things out to sort of give themselves some credibility, even as they're reporting on it. But that said, it's still noteworthy to look at what they've exposed here because um, this is uh, a this is a real question for us. I mean, uh, the top-down management of our society is is. It has been done, I think, for imperial imperialist purposes, but that empire is kind of crumbling as we speak. And it's going to, perhaps, if we can allow for the U.S. hegemony to kind of uh, subside, we're going to be left with very dysfunctional institutions that no longer have the the free lunch that we were getting by virtue of our imperial position. So maybe in some way, they are... Uh, this is this may seem optimistic, but maybe they are actually trying to rein in some of these things to deal with how dysfunctional our our discourse is. I mean, I don't, I, I, I. That may be very naive or or optimistic, yeah. but uh, it, it's like perhaps they are starting to realize the Orwellian dimensions and the the problems that are actually caused by this. I mean, the problem with li- the traditionally liberals defend free speech because the idea is that. In this open marketplace of ideas, the better ideas will prevail, and that will allow uh, society to be moved in a positive direction because people will uh, embrace the smart ideas, and that will lead to like social progress and you know advancement and so on and so forth. Well, they've really uh, crushed that in many ways, and we believe the common sense in America, quote-unquote, is full of so many stupid ideas that have been put there by essentially PR flax. Over the years of the equivalent of them to the point that they've hardened into like national myths about the greatness of capitalism and American exception, exceptionalism and so on. And uh, it's it's we're really dysfunctional. So perhaps somebody is saying this is actually pa- pathological and perhaps we should change it a little bit. But <laughs> I, I think that's probably not correct, that we're probably headed for more censorship before there's less. But eventually maybe we'll get to the point where there's there's less,
1: less less of it. Talk a little bit about groups like NewsGuard, for example, that purport to decide which news sources are worthy of being read and which are not. NewsGuard um, works closely with the Pentagon. It has a former CIA director on its board. It has the former Secretary General of NATO on its board. Uh, They've blackballed legitimate news sources like Consortium News, Mint Press News, The Gray Zone, simply because they don't like the content. Tell me Please, that groups like this are not the solution to this problem.
3: Yeah, there that NewsGuard is uh, is a joke. I mean, it's it's horrendous uh, that they would that this would be able to get any traction at all. This is essentially Big Brother uh, telling you what is safe or not to consume, uh, and they they do go after groups and they go after groups that are not. That, that aren't especially. I mean, they have, the the groups that they go after have a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the resources that the worst of their big corporate media networks have, like CNN. You know, they like they they are so tiny. I mean, I know people that write for these places, like, and work for these work at these places uh, at Consortium News, Mint Press, Zone, and they are they they have so little to work with. It, to me, it shows just how afraid they are. Uh, it to it should, to me. I mean, I I wrote this book on the U.S. Empire and the amount of, as I'm, for my dissertation, the amount of I- information about the the criminal nature of the the U.S. Empire and the uh, amount of 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 uh, just really exploitative chicanery that they have employed over decades since the end of the World War II is really a- astounding and overwhelming. And the only way that you keep people from grasping the the nature of the regime that we live under is with enormous amounts of propaganda. And that's why I think they do freak out over these tiny little outlets because there's a the, – the, the Wurlitzer of uh, the you know the empire, the corporate media blob uh, is so it drowns out so much and then there's other crazy screwball tangents that people can go on also that also don't help like Alex Jones right. or whatever that these real anti-war uh places are really pushed to the margins and so something like newsguard that's there to like say like oh no this is a bad news site well the ones that they would promote like the new york times or the washington post they have been the worst purveyors of disinformation and uh this is disinformation that has resulted in the deaths of millions of people in uh you know illegal and very dubious, immoral foreign wars that the U- and and other operations that the U.S. has pursued to uh, in its attempt to try to rule the world. So these, the worst disinformation purveyors are uh, are the ones that NewsGuard is going to give a huge uh, you know thumbs up to. So this is it's you know it's cliche to call it things Orwellian, but this is more like sort of Orwellian mind control from uh, the, from the empire from the deep state,
1: almost. Immediately after Elon Musk completed his purchase of Twitter, Senator Chris Murphy, a Connecticut Democrat, called for a national security analysis of the of the deal. What do you make of this? Is there any is there any national security angle to Musk's purchase of Twitter? Well, if there is, it uh
3: it, it is something that would be problematic to even admit because you're you're saying that our conception of the national security, which in the case of these Democrats and Republicans means the maintenance of US global dominance in perpetuity, right? Then you're saying that having a stranglehold on public discourse is, is uh you know a central pillar of our national security strategy. Okay, which right. is not how it's supposed to be. It's actually supposed to be that <laughs> People don't. We don't even think this way anymore. But it's actually supposed to be that the public has an idea of the policies they would like leaders to pursue, and then they they vote for people on that basis. Uh, it's not supposed to be the manufacturing of consent from the people in power, right? That's like an anti-democratic idea. So we that's, but that's what of course what we have. But we have to pretend that we don't. So when they start talking about how Twitter is like part of the national security. Uh, situation in the United States, that kind of gives the game away because it's a it, it's in a way a tacit admission that like our national security strategy depends on being able to uh, propagandize the population. And if there's too much free speech, that might be more difficult. I mean, they might try to say that, oh, it's really prone to manipulation from like Russians. Right. But we all know, like, I mean, I know who I've been seeing on my feet all the time. And it's those uh, annoying troglodyte nafo uh spammers <laughs> you know like if there's right. any huge pr it, propaganda campaign for like war you know war and such it's coming from the nato side this is it's like russia announces that mobilization of 300,000 soldiers and the us response is 500,000 um, spammers or something it, it's kind of it's kind of pitiful uh so if it is part of the national security <laughs> strategy this is just embarrassing and it's a uh, it belies everything the U.S. wants to say about democracy and democratic deliberation and openness and transparency uh, or the U.S. as some kind of uh, counter counter force against a, quote unquote authoritarianism or so on. I mean, there's really no right. sort of authoritarianism that the U.S. hasn't supported domestically or or abroad and or abroad uh, that you could think of. So this is all just, uh, I think, late imperial silliness from uh, the establishment here.
1: One last question, Senator Murphy also asked for a review, for a review of APAC's actions in conjunction with a with an RNC um, group, a fundraising group in a Pennsylvania congressional race. There's a woman by the name of Summer Lee who is running in a strongly blue district that looks like it might be tightening now in the final days of the race. This is a district in Pittsburgh. APAC and the RNC are doing everything possible to beat her. They're afraid she's going to join the squad and be anti-Israel, et cetera, et cetera. They spent $3 million in the Democratic primary to beat her. She won anyway. They've spent another $680,000 in the general election. It's no secret that APAC is political and that they oppose the squad and prospective squad. Anybody who supports Palestinian rights or BDS— but this is the way that APAC has always worked. So what what would there be to investigate? This is a good question. I don't
3: know the details of what – I mean there are laws that govern the way that these uh, – I mean they've been really, really whittled away at in recent years. But that are supposed to govern the way special interest groups can uh, operate in the U.S. And I think that APAC has a strange role where they're not exactly registered as foreign agents. Uh, Correct. They, they are not. And Yes. And so – you know, I, I would guess that Murphy is just uh, really making a—I so, don't even making a symbolic s- statement here. I mean, we'll see what actually comes of this, but they seem to have free reign to throw money around because that's kind of the default in the United States anyway, as far as corporations being able to uh, influence and other pools of money being able to influence politics as much as they want. But uh, with APAC in particular. They have the extra bonus of being um, you know, affiliated with, the, uh, with Zionism in the United States, which enjoys bipartisan support by and large. And uh, part of the way that it enjoys bipartisan support is by crushing people in either party if they are at all um, you know, critical of the unconditional U.S. support for, for Israel and Israel's crimes in Palestine. Um, so it's uh, this – you would hope – that the that APAC is somehow uh taken to task and and forced uh, held accountable for manipulating u s democracy, but I'm not going to hold my hold my breath for that um yeah. because uh, yeah. the squad the the squad some you know people like uh, Rashida talibs were were saying that Israel's an apartheid state, and then you know people freak out about that. The squad, I think, is very cautious and not especially useful as we're finding out with they don't even they're not even really there to help us avoid nuclear war. it seems yeah now.
1: yeah, you're so, exactly right.
3: they all voted uh, for the
1: defense budget
3: yeah, yeah, and they withdrew that letter. I mean, this is embarrassing, so uh you know this is I think that the u s the the situation with APAC having so much influence in the u s this is the kind of thing that's not going to really. A lot likely to change until the U.S. position in the world changes, and at that point, it it won't be Israel can't be propped up in the same way by uh, U.S. global uh, dominance. You know that that's not yeah. going to be enough just to keep Israel do, uh,
1: able to do all the things that it does. I would agree. Well, thank you, Aaron Good, for joining us. Dr. Aaron Good is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. And he's also the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take another short break and come back. Stay tuned.
0: Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am here with my co-host, John Kiriaku, and we are, as promised, Checking in with our correspondent in Brazil to see what the hell is happening there as Bolsonaro uh, continues to be incommunicado and his supporters block roads and wait for word. We're joined now by co-host of Fault Lines and host of the Progressive Soapbox on YouTube, Jamaral Thomas. How are you doing, Jamaral?
5: I am doing fine. How are you guys doing?
0: We're okay. Um, So last I saw, still no word from Jair Bolsonaro, neither uh, conceding this election or challenging the results.
5: So the latest reports that I've seen a few minutes ago was that Bolsonaro and people around him, basically, he is going to accept the results, even though he's not necessarily going to concede. Um, And this was coming out from his own people in his own campaign. The communication minister basically came out and said that he will make a statement today. Um, conceding doesn't necessarily sound like it's going to be on the agenda, but at the very least they say he's not going to test the results. And so, yeah, everybody is basically waiting for him to say anything. Um, the big news here though, are the protests. Mm-hmm. Truckers at this point have gotten to the point of blocking, um, access to mm-hmm. various things like grain and food. And there are few shortages in various parts of Brazil as a direct result of the truckers and the way that they're basically protesting. Um, it is unclear whether or not they're going to leave, they're to threats. The Morales, Alexander de Morales, the head of the electoral Supreme Court, basically said, get those get those people out there and have threatened fines up to $20,000 an hour for as long as those truckers stay out there. Well, those truckers remain. Mm-hmm. He told the cops, the federal cops, get those truckers out there by any means necessary. And I'm paraphrasing. Mm-hmm. Well, head of the cops, Savini, was one of the people who were backing Bolsonaro. And also, if you remember, he was the one that blew off the electoral court and set up those roadblocks in order to inhibit people from getting from point A to point B regarding the election. So Alexander Morales basically said, look, if you don't do that, we will fine you also. He said by Tuesday evening, if you don't do it, meaning talking about the um, federal general, the the head of the highway police, you yourself will be fined and you will be put in jail. And he's talking about, again, $20,000 fine. Well, he didn't do it. Yeah. But at the very least, he doesn't seem to be doing it. I mean, there's video of some of the cops at the protest basically backing – right here, backing the protesters. Quote, mm-hmm. our only border right now is for being here with you. These are the cops. These are the highway the federal cops yeah. that are out there with the protesters despite the fact that the um, electoral court basically said get those people out there. They I- went on and called the state cops. One second, one last thing. Because the federal cops are not necessarily paying attention to the court, they ordered the state cops to go out there and basically clear out the protesters. Now, what does this mean? So what, state cops are going to be fighting federal cops. It's the weirdest thing ever. The federal cops said they got rid of, I guess, several hundred of the protesters, but there's still 200 and something truckers blocking the various exits um, to and from, especially between the countries, I mean, between the various states. So the inability. Certain flights were canceled, like several flights were basically canceled because it couldn't necessarily get into the international airport. Now It's a mess. And like you said, Bolsonaro hasn't necessarily come out and said one thing or the other. So at this point, everybody's basically waiting. He's supposed to speak and give a statement today. But his communication minister basically said he's not going to contest the results. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to accept
0: I mean, I've seen also there was news from an hour or so ago that the public prosecutor's office has opened an election fraud investigation against the director of the the federal highway police for ordering their own uh, election day roadblocks that they say were intended to prevent people in in rural areas from voting. Well, my question about these protests is also that it doesn't. I mean, Bolsonaro hasn't spoken. I haven't seen anything suggesting that Bolsonaro has that this is being coordinated at any level beyond the grassroots. I'm wondering what sense you have of that.
5: Correct. No, that's true. Yeah. I mean, a lot of this stuff is being organized on like Telegram and social media. And so there doesn't seem to be a kind of a coordinated thing. It's also it's just we support Bolsonaro. We don't like the fact that Lula's coming in office. And so we are now going to protest and we're going to make a stink about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like people, you know, children doing a The problem is these children have the ability to block access the things that people need, like fuel and yeah. food. Yeah. And look, within a few days, I mean, you're talking about certain areas of the country that, like, is out of fuel, where people are, you know, in these long lines and everything else. Um. And it's super weird that the cops basically are blowing off the judge. Just- In fact, the federal Supreme Court endorsed the determination of Minister Alexander Morris of the Federal Highway Police to clear highway block by protesters to Brazil. And like I said, Morris Morris determined on Monday night that if you don't block those highways, you're going to get fined $20,000 an hour. Now, the head of that, Silvini Vasquez, is basically the one who um, is head of the Federal Highway Police. And so they're saying he's going to be immediately removed. If he does not comply, and this is the same thing. I mean, morale is the same thing on election day. Mm-hmm. We will put you in jail if you do not comply. Well, at this point, it doesn't necessarily seem like they're complying. The truckers are still out there. I don't necessarily know what the state police. I haven't seen any reports recently about the state police action yet in regards to this. Now, according to the federal police, they say they remove hundreds of roadblocks. But at this point, the issue is still there. And so it is anybody's guess what is going to happen. Apparently, they're giving them to Tuesday night to basically get this done. Um, and then what? Like, it's what's, right what's now. the or else? If, if they don't, don't do so, The or else is he going to jail. Yeah, okay. He's not going to put him in jail. Yeah. Like, keep in mind, on election day, they we're threatening him to jail in the first place, saying basically you're non compliant. A judge is giving you an order. The Supreme Court, the highest Supreme Court of the land, has basically backed up Alexander de Morales, the head of the, um, the electoral Supreme Court, and basically said, get those people out there, and we're backing Morales in doing so. So it is a weird situation where truckers and police have basically backed balls and And at this point, they are blowing off the rulings of the court and the highest court in Brazil. It is super weird. So the question becomes, what does state cops do? Are you yes. going to have state cops fighting federal cops and trying to get rid of protests? Do, like you, call, right now.
0: do you call out the military? Right. And they're always questioned the military. You know, the the whole narrative about Bolsonaro's ability to hang on to power if he lost this vote hinged on his support of the military, which, oh. you know, everybody assessed was not enough, not enough for them to actually, you know, try right. to put their finger on the scale. But it might be a bit to call them out to enforce an election against
5: him. You know, that's man. I yeah. don't know what that looks like. I don't either. Like Because my, my take on this initially was from a point of view of, let's say, the legalistic point of view, from the purely political and legalistic point of view, Bolsonaro lost. And many of his own supporters, people who were in um, government, most of them, there's some lunatics. There's one, I can't think of her name, Zembelli or something like that. She basically chased the black guy down with a gun and made the guy kill on the saw, ground I after an that. argument. I God. Um, and there's a video all over of that. It's like, she, that lunatic. Is basically like no, Bolsonaro should keep going. Yeah, but for the most part, many of the people who have backed him politically have come out saying Lula won. Lula mm-hmm. won, and even people within his own camp come out and say, look, I mean, the lower court, I mean, I'm sorry, lower parts of um part uh, of Congress have basically said, look, there needs to be a clean transition of power um, between the two. And at this point, elements of Bolsonaro's team is already working with Lula's team regarding the transition. So, so- from a legalistic point of view, they've accepted Lula. From a public point of view. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that's, that's interesting. That's where
0: good news, because I was going to ask you, there's a lot riding on this two month transition period, right? When Bolsonaro and his supporters could have chosen to really gum things up, at, you know, at the sort of level of government. And from what you're saying, it doesn't seem like that is happening.
5: It does not seem like that is happening. And by the way, we do have more time. The next interview is not until later, so we can go Great. for the longest time that you want. Great. Yeah, I'm sorry, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I don't know. But no, Time no, changes are wild. Yeah, um, no, I figured. Yeah. but but yeah, we yeah we honestly don't know what's going to happen. Like I was, I was very optimistic, with, like after the election mm-hmm. and after the first day, where it was like, okay, I don't see anything set on fire, nothing's blowing up, mm-hmm. and it's like, okay, there are protesters. Okay, those people can you know they can complain and everything else. And then my thought was, okay, it seemed like the world is accepting this, Mm -hmm. and it seemed like the political aspect of this is accepted. So, like I said, from a legalistic point of view, he does not seem to have support. He seems to be completely isolated from the standpoint of his own people coming out saying, yes, Lula won, or his own communication person coming out saying, "Okay, yes, Bolsonaro is going to make a statement today, um, and he is not going to contest the results of the election. Well, that's different. Been saying that Lula basically won. That's just saying he's not going to contest the result of the election. However, Bolsonaro hasn't made a statement at all. He was supposed to speak on Monday. Well, he hasn't said anything. The supporters are out there literally flipping out. And so the issue is not politics. The issue is more so the public. And not just the public. Aspects or edifices of the public itself that are, let's say, um, instrumental and necessary for the country to basically function. The trucker had protests once before they basically shut down the country in various areas. Well, that's what's taking place now. And so they're blowing off the court. And then you say, okay, well, what about the cops? That's another aspect of a country. That's another like a power center in that sense of the country that is basically enacting law. Well, at this point, they're blowing off the law.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Like so you get this kind of weird mix where the public is doing one thing, even though the political space is going in a completely different direction. And from the standpoint of gumming up the works, Many of the people who are looking at or reading that are like political scientists and whatnot are saying Bolsonaro doesn't matter what he does. Like, if, like, from a purely legalistic point of view, that this is going to take place regardless. He doesn't have to concede. He doesn't have to show up at the inauguration. He yeah. doesn't have to do anything. Yeah. Whether it he just, can come up the works in a toilet, I don't know. It That's just seems question, so though. irresponsible to, I mean, to like, not say anything. You know, States, for twenty-four hours, you know. It does. Come on he has been screaming for the last year. Only God can take me out of office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Only God can take, remove me. Or for the most part, there's fraud, there's fraud. It's full of fraud. He's been saying that for like a year. Mm-hmm. I think he probably saw the writing on the wall. Um, from his standpoint, though, I don't know what he does. I mean, he does. It's not like in the U.S. where you know they have all of these little um, like small items. They usually get lost over. But all things being equal, if you actually focus on it, you can unnerve it. Like for example, Mike Pence going in with Trump, having to declare Joe Biden a winner? What mm-hmm. happens if Mike Pence doesn't do that? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not like that. It's it's more so um, from the standpoint of the transition of power. Well, it seems that the mechanisms are already in place that allow one to basically take power over the other, regardless of what Bolsonaro does. Now, there were other situations where presidents didn't necessarily want to leave or presidents didn't necessarily want to participate in the transition process. But like I said, from this point on, the news of the reporting is that people in his own camp has already started working with lula in regards to the transition team so i don't get the feel i agree with you it is um unreasonable and irresponsible to not say anything By the same token this is actual power you know this is not like these people the people who are in power from my standpoint don't necessarily um care about responsibility or anything else many of them don't especially if they're in this thing of how do i stay in power or whatnot yeah But the fact is not said anything though like when, if you remember when trump came out trump came out at like two in the morning it's me a fraud it's fraud
1: yeah everything you know
5: oh, fraud is all over the place well he didn't do that and to me it's like you would have had to do that early in order to kind of set your narrative about what you want to take place and have your supporters basically respond to you waiting two days or waiting a day and a half is just weird it's weird all the way around it's like it's you know either concede or don't he just did nothing some people are saying that he's waiting to see what happens from the standpoint of the audience meaning yeah do i have enough people who are blowing stuff up. And then he comes out and makes a statement one way or the other on it. But all the messages that are coming out, at the very least from the camp, is that even though he hasn't necessarily conceded, he may not necessarily contest the results. Yeah. Um, but he's supposed to give a statement today, and up to this point, nothing.
0: I wonder if there, is there any concern that, as I understand it, tomorrow's a holiday in Brazil. Any concern that having a bunch of people mm-hmm. off work anyway is going to lead to more public de- demonstrations and perhaps unrest than you might have otherwise had?
5: That's a good question. I mean, many of the Bulls and Arrows supporters that are basically underground, let's say not in the political space, many of them accepted the results. Like, so you didn't have this huge upswell. There were a few pocket things of people fighting or people getting angry, especially after the election itself. Um, but from my point of view, this is a question I can't answer yeah. as a flat fact, but I can answer it from the standpoint of usually when you have a lot more people who are out of work, they show up. Yeah. So look, to your, you may be. I know you didn't necessarily say it as a statement per se, but it is a logical thing of, okay, if more people are out of work and more people are back and balls in Bolsonaro. I mean, the truckers have been asking for money, food, water, stuff like that, because they want to keep the protests going. Yeah. If you have a lot of people who are out of – those people can inflame those protests. and make those things worse. I mean, but again, at this point, the judge has basically called for those to be removed. Yeah. So I think the biggest question coming up, though, is what do the cops do? Like, what is the federal highway police going to do? What is the state police going to do? Mm-hmm. Whether they're going to actually follow what the judge is saying in order to remove those protests or are they going to decide with the protesters up to this point? Hard to tell. Yeah, it really is. Um, but I think you asked, I think the answer to that question is yes.
0: Let me ask you, uh, you know, a really important question, and that is uh, have Bolsonaro and his wife followed each other on social media again? <laughs> I, saw that. I saw that. I saw that.
5: supposedly they followed following each other. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't know answer to that. That was super weird. Yeah. I was like all right, I lost the election. Now let's you know, let's yeah. do something else. I yeah. don't know. That was super funny, and I couldn't figure out why she, why they did that. That was a big. I uh... couldn't figure out why they did that. Now so his son came up, and his son did make a statement. Um, discussing that. I guess, you know, um, people keep their heads high and, you know, that type of stuff. But but no, I don't know why they separate. I thought that was super weird. Yeah. I thought that was super weird. Because, by they, the way, she was backing him in this campaign. She was actually out there trying to get women to join him and making this argument about, you know, oh, the communists are going to take it if you don't do it. And this is what a spiritual and God and all this other stuff. This, mm-hmm. She tried to get more women to basically back Bolsonaro. Yeah. so let But me, I don't know why they separate.
0: Let me ask you one more thing, and then we'll we'll let you go, Jamal. But I am seeing this um uh, tweet saying that the homeless workers movement in Brazil is going to send people to break up the blockades that have been set up by Bolsonaro supporters. So, you know, before you even have uh, some uh, police versus police action, I mean, there does seem like there's the increasing possibility of just street fights over these blockades, which is you know, an, an awful possibility. Uh, have you heard anything about people? You know, people actually going I, to confront these these uh, blockades and try to dismantle them themselves.
5: I have not, but man, I hope that it doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard about a homeless going to the blockade, but I really hope that doesn't happen. Like, because I mean, all things been equal. If this is something that this may not be something that lasts for weeks, mm-hmm. like they may just run out of steam. This might just be we're angry. At the fact that I got lost. Yeah. But it may not be something that necessarily goes on a perpetuity. Anybody yeah. who's going there to contest those guys is just going to inflame it. it. It just really is. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where this is, on some level, it is the cop's responsibility to get those people out. Yeah. And if it gets to the point, I mean, because what are they going to do? And Bolsonaro's homeless, responsibility, have, frankly. It, it is. Yeah. But, but I don't know if we can accept Bolsonaro as a reasonable or, let's say, a responsible actor in this. I mean, like I said, I don't mm-hmm. think Trump was a responsible act, personally. Mm-hmm. I mean, Donald Trump put out there a script of fraud. If you're, the problem is, your electoral system is the thing that basically decides legitimacy. We are conferring legitimacy because this is the guy that won. In Brazil, the electoral system is compulsory, meaning everybody has to vote, or you need to come up with the reason why you didn't vote, or otherwise you get a fine if you don't do so. The electoral, meaning the people who are going to vote, for the most part, this notion of fraud is nonsense. They're. The Electoral Commission, the Supreme, Court, um, the Supreme Electoral Commission, they basically were putting out all the information necessary, meaning, okay, these voting machines were down, they were down in this particular location, they were replaced here. They were doing everything in their power to deal with this issue of fraud in order to ensure that the legitimacy of the election was solidified within the context of the public mind. If a president is gonna scream, Fraud, the electoral system is broken and everything else. They're basically cutting and undercutting the legitimacy of a particular election. Every bit as much as what Democrats did when they screamed, um, Vladimir Putin put Trump on his back and ran across the finish line. Or every bit as much as Trump did when he started screaming, fraud. It undercuts your country's ability to choose a leader and give legitimacy to that particular leader to rule. That's what Bolsonaro is doing. And so many of the supporters are like, that guy is illegitimate. Even many of those guys basically said he should overthrow the country itself, meaning he should just blow off the election and take power. Like, this is where some of their heads are. And so Bolsonaro basically inspired this. I mean, anybody who's here who's screaming about fraud is basically taking their cue from Bolsonaro every bit as much as they took their cue from Trump. And so— Irresponsible or responsibility or responsible is not something that I would ascribe to Bolsonaro. Yeah. However this transition process go, as on some level go, or potentially go, without him. All
0: right. Yeah, we'll have to see what he comes out to say. All right, Jamal Thomas, we're going to let you go. That was Jamal Thomas of our own show, Fault Lines, and also the Progressive Soapbox on YouTube. Jamal, we might have to check in with you tomorrow and see uh, see what Bolsonaro said. But for now, uh, we'll say goodbye. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you later. Hey, uh, John, you want some breaking news?
1: Oh, I'd love some breaking news. And after you're done, I'll give you some funny news.
0: Oh, all right. How exciting. Well, my news is that uh, in, in uh, the category of people negotiating with themselves, Elon Musk has just tweeted that Twitter verification is not going to be $20 a month. It's going to be $8 a month. So maybe it'll get well, down to five and that will be I, an I'm, appropriate level for Aaron Good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'll keep my I'll keep my $8. It's not worth it to me. No, not worth it. All right. How about this? From the, from the London Telegraph. A production of Romeo and Juliet for non-binary performers with Juliet reimagined as a persecuted Jew and Romeo as a member of the Hitler Youth. What? It's become, yep, it's become embroiled in a row over what? Over its failure to include any Jewish people in the casting call. Well, I, you know, I'm not surprised <laughs> at that.
0: Wow. <laughs> I was about, I was thinking, like, surely John isn't poking fun at, like, you know, an effort to include non binary actors in performances. No, no, but no, That's means, fine. The 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 oh, boy. I don't yeah, think that was, nuts. I don't think that was the vibe between the Capulets and the Montagues that, uh, I, they were, I think they were just rivals. I don't think that exactly, this, wow. exactly. Wow. Embroiled, embroiled in scandal, you say. Well, people are people sure are sensitive these days, John. Boy, crazy. yeah,
1: just crazy. Well, that
0: makes me feel better than anything else I've heard all day. That's <laughs> terrible. And yeah, if you had asked me how much money I wanted to bet that there weren't any Jews involved, <laughs> I, would have, I would have bet quite a bit. Um. I have some some local news that that caught my eye just because it sort of comes back to a theme that we've been talking about, which is the pandemic. Is it still a thing or not? And Axios right. this morning noted that the d c council is uh, considering suspending the city's student covid vaccine mandate, partly because vaccination rates are low, and nobody's getting this booster. Um The story says that as of the end of September, around 46 percent of D.C. public school students were still not in compliance with getting their first uh, COVID shot. Um, And that only six and a half percent of D.C. residents have gotten the new uh, the new bivalent booster. And so they're kind of thinking, well, you know, should we even bother? Uh, The story also notes uh, that uh, it is difficult to convince people to get boosters when the administration is also saying the pandemic is over. Right, yeah, which makes total right. sense. I'm a little surprised that these these rates are so low in DC, like compared uh, to Maryland. Uh, uptake for that the new booster is me. it's eleven and a half percent. Uh huh. in Virginia, you can't tell, so it's about double in Maryland. I mean, some of this is access, some of this I don't know, some of this is demographic. But actually, I thought that um, well, I but, thought that African Americans really, were actually really taking up the vaccination, right? Which would make yeah, you think yeah, yeah, rates would be higher right. here.
1: No, in the in the beginning, D.C. was well ahead of Maryland and Virginia Mm -hmm. in the number of residents who were vaccinated. They were like leaders in the eastern United States.
0: I think also people just I mean, the first vaccinations, of course, as we recall, were were for adults. And I think people really also are not necessarily seeing. That there's a ton of value in um, vaccinating their children against this disease. They're not, I'm saying this is what this data says to me. I am not saying whether or not you should vaccinate your kids, right? Because right. I don't have any. I haven't had to make that decision and I wouldn't make it for anybody else. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it looks like they are, you know, they're going to have to drop it or you're going to have a bunch of kids who aren't in class. So, yeah. The weird, yeah. the, the weird pandemic story, and in the meantime, China has, uh, you know, China has imposed a couple of more sort of snap lockdowns because of COVID cases. Yes, they so have. You do wonder, like, how long we can have these two parallel tracks in terms of how we deal with this without ending up? Well, I don't know. I was going to say ending up sort of minimizing travel and population transfers, but I guess you can achieve China can still achieve what it wants to through testing and quarantine. We'll see. I think we'll and, be you know, talking. The, the- oh yeah
1: we're out of time
0: we're out of time save it for tomorrow john (laughs) gotta do our thank yous thanks to everybody for joining us thanks to everybody for listening john kiriaku and myself michelle Woody. we'll see you tomorrow